This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and he joined me to talk about the changes to the rate of the unemployment allowance. After years of lobbying, is the new permanent rate adequate and what does this mean for people currently struggling and living below the poverty line in Australia? Richard also joined me to talk about the last couple of tumultuous weeks in Canberra, particularly the allegations of rape and sexual assault that have been made against a parliamentary staffer as well as against a cabinet minister. As usual, Richard unravels the political spin from Canberra. Please note there is mild use of explicit language in this conversation. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back onto this program Dr Richard Dennis, who is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and he is here joining me from Canberra via the phone. And Richard is going to be chatting with us all about the unemployment benefit rate change which some people have said, is it a raise or is it actually a cut? Because at the moment there is a coronavirus supplement that is really boosting the current rate massively. So it's a little bit distorted, but we will get into all the detail of what has changed and whether that's enough. Is it significant? It is significant in a way, as I said at the start of the show, because for the whole time that I've been following politics, really, we've been hearing about this argument that the unemployment rate needs to be raised. It's not something that people can live on with any dignity. It's not practical. And therefore, it's really very difficult to get work because you're not provided with that safety net that it was supposed to be. So that is significant in the sense that we've seen lobbying for years and years. We finally have seen the government decide to do something and yet it's really not adequate. And so we will get all through the detail of that in just a moment. But given what has been happening in Canberra, I did want to check in with Richard first about what's going on in Canberra at the moment, particularly after Friday night when we saw Louise Milligan from Four Corners report that there had been an anonymous letter sent to the Prime Minister, which apparently he received, according to him, on Wednesday night, which detailed allegations against a current Cabinet Minister And the allegations are that an alleged rape occurred against a 16-year-old girl in 1988 by this cabinet minister. So that is the allegation that has been really um, the focus of the weekend and yesterday. And so I do want to welcome Richard now and say thanks so much, first of all, for joining us. It's really great to have you back on the show. Oh, very welcome. Always happy to come on. I wanted to get an idea from you, given that you are based up in Canberra and it is a small town, really. It is a city. It is the capital city, but it really feels like a small town and the Canberra bubble, so to speak, is even smaller. So, Richard, I did want to get a sense from you in terms of what has been happening over the last three weeks. We saw the original allegation by Brittany Higgins that um, she alleges that she was raped in the Defence Minister's office in Parliament House by one of her colleagues who was a staffer at the time and she was also a staffer. We've since seen three further women come out with allegations against the same staffer. Then on Friday night, as I just said, we've seen a very, very serious allegation which was really brought to our attention and by the PM's attention via an anonymous letter from a friend of the woman who alleges 
that she was raped as a 16-year-old girl in 1988 by a currently serving cabinet minister. Now, I wanted to get a sense from you, first of all, what is the political atmosphere like up in Canberra, given the progression of events over the last two to three weeks, especially the last development? Uh, Look, I think people in Canberra are angry, particularly angry and indeed at times disgusted by what they're seeing. Um, One thing that people in Canberra know is that information flows uphill. Um, everybody loves to tell their boss something their boss didn't know. Everybody in this count, in this town is aware of the value of information and the value of being seen to possess information. So nobody in this town believes the Prime Minister wasn't aware of these, uh, of these events and indeed these allegations. Uh, nobody believes that because everybody knows how this town works. And uh, for the Prime Minister, to say, I had no idea, no one told me, suggests that, well, first of all, he he runs a very unique Prime Minister's office where where not even Cabinet Ministers want to tell him what's going on. But if if he's to be believed, he's, he's running the most overt don't ask, don't tell policy on a whole range of important issues. So so no one here in Canberra takes seriously the claim that he didn't know and for him to not know uh, actually suggests perhaps something even worse, that uh, that we have a Prime Minister who's, who's locked in his own Canberra bubble where, where he's protected from inconvenient truths around him. But then, of course, uh, we, we have the situation now where I won't say everyone in Canberra knows uh, who the allegations of rape are against, but I'd suggest a very, very large number of people in Canberra know. And when I say no, I mean no, I know who it is. But of course, for all of the talk of freedom of speech in Australia, uh, no one's allowed to speak freely because we're all afraid of powerful people suing us. Uh, if we tell the public what we know. So, so again, you've got the Prime Minister. Uh, you've got the Prime Minister protected by the Canberra bubble that, 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 that he spent two years uh, attacking. I mean, it's, it, it's an insult to Canberra. It's an insult to the country. Uh, and I actually think it's untenable. I think, I think Australians need to have high expectations of our democracy. And what we're seeing at the moment is, is an incredible low light. Well, I did hear um, and read Laura Tingle's pieces, which are also exceptionally valuable as well. And, you know, she, I think, has a similar view to you in the sense that we've really reached a very deeply cynical moment and a new low, as you say, in terms of our expectations of politicians and also our expectations of how we treat other humans. And cabinet ministers do make laws for everyone else and they are held to a higher standard. That's why there's something called ministerial standards although it's very wishy-washy in terms of how those are enforced. But it does bring up a a critical point here, which is that if there are very serious allegations that have been raised by someone, in this case um, a woman who since has killed herself last year and who has greatly suffered in terms of her well-being because of this alleged rape that she says took place when she was 16 years old, That is very serious and she took that to police. New South Wales Police and South Australian Police were very much aware of that. I wonder from your perspective, having observed politics and your insights as you've just shared, 
Do you think it's tenable for a cabinet minister, a male cabinet minister, to have these allegations swirling around around them with no step taken to perhaps get them to step aside temporarily while perhaps an investigation is conducted, such as happened with the Dyson Hayden case. What are your thoughts about the kind of things that people have suggested should happen or could happen in this situation, given that usually if such an allegation would occur, you would often see a politician say, well, I might disagree with it, but I'm going to step aside because X, Y, Z. And in this case, no doubt some of this person's colleagues would also want that person to step aside uh, because, you know, there's a lot of rumours flying around who it is. Um, There's an old saying that justice must not only be done, it must be seen to be done. Judges recuse themselves from court cases, not because they think they're incapable of being impartial, but because they don't want for a minute anyone to suspect they weren't impartial. So for justice to be seen to be done, uh, those in charge of meeting it out need to, need to hold themselves uh, to a higher standard. But, But of course, what we're seeing now is Uh, ministers often holding themselves to a lower standard than we would expect from our employees or indeed from our children. I mean, the idea, I mean, if if one of your kids misbehaved and when you called them out on it, their response was, but but another kid misbehaved. (laughs) I mean, you know, who cares? This is not how accountability works, whether it's in a a household or in a democracy. So, uh, no, I think justice needs to be seen to be done. Uh, Once upon a time, uh, once upon a time, and, and indeed around the world, still this is the case, in a Westminster democracy, ministers often step down or step aside, not because they feel that they've done but because they're so afraid that people think they might have done something wrong and they want to ensure that people continue to have faith in the institution of uh, of government, in the institution of democracy, that once upon a time in Australia and still around the world, just not here, ministers do this. I mean, the, the Dutch government resigned en masse over a scandal almost identical to our robo-debts debacle, the whole government said, look, we're sorry, that was a disaster and we're, we're out of here because we want you to respect us in the future and we want you to respect your government right now in the present. But we've invented a bizarre sort of set of rules in Australia where, where powerful people think, I can tough it out. What are you going to do? You have no constitutional power to remove me. And, and if me staying here means you lose faith in government, lose faith in democracy, well, that's not a bad thing because you'll be losing faith in the other side as well. So, uh, so I, think it's, I think it's appalling that the Prime Minister would, would let this injury to our democracy continue. And I'd also say that uh, it's one thing that this person is a cabinet minister. Um, the prime minister knows which cabinet minister it is, and, and he knows that some portfolios are uh, are more sensitive than others when it comes to uh, when it comes to our faith in democracy. So it's it's not just about the person; it's about the role they hold. And yeah, I, I just as a, as an as an Australian. Uh, and as an as observer of, of policy uh, on both levels, I, I feel really disturbed that in order to protect the reputation of one person, 
we would sully the reputation of an, enti- an entire institution. Uh, I think a man of integrity would actually just say, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't, if, if it is what he believes, that it wasn't him, he would still step aside and say, but let's get to the bottom of it. Indeed, I noticed Malcolm Turnbull made exactly that point this morning when there were rumours about uh, illegality that Kerry Packer was involved in. Um, there was a code name, Goanna, for this person involved allegedly in organised crime and Kerry Packer put his hand up and said, I didn't do it, but that everyone's talking about me. There's, there's nothing to stop one cabinet minister here uh, restoring some faith in, in the rest of his male uh, cabinet colleagues. Mm, absolutely. It's disturbing because the Prime Minister has said, well, that's a matter for police. I can't pass judgment. Someone said, do you believe this woman and her allegations? Well, that's a matter for police. So we're hearing this dead-end response from the Prime Minister where he basically won't answer anything and deflects attention and any responsibility for decision-making back to the police. But, of course, because this woman has since passed away, the police have somewhat more limited abilities to investigate, although the coroner has some powers which could be relevant in this situation. But it does strike me as quite ridiculous. Um, And I did want to raise this before we get into JobSeeker because it is very related, and that is the fact that we did see the Aged Care Royal Commission's final report handed down yesterday, or at least tabled in Parliament. It was handed to the government before they tabled it. The government called a press conference without the journalists at the press conference being able to read the document. So they were called to a press conference about the fact that the Aged Care Royal Commission's final report has been released. The journalists have half an hour to get to this press conference and then they're expected to ask all these questions of the government about the Aged Care Royal Commission's final report, which is massive to say the least. And Scott Morrison deflected that. Now, I've got to say, as someone who's been looking at politics for a long time, I thought it was very, very shotgun to see that as soon as the government received the final report, within a business day or two, it seems, that they've used the Aged Care Royal Commission as a way to deflect from the current discussions about this issue and the allegations around this cabinet minister. It seemed a little too convenient that they immediately tabled it, held a press conference, wouldn't answer questions about the allegations, and then journalists weren't even able to ask the questions about the Aged Care Royal Commission, which is so critical. Yeah, uh, look, you know, let me choose my words carefully here. The Prime Minister's taking the piss. Um, <laughs> uh, he's, no, look, at, I, I mean it. He's just taking the piss, and 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 he's so desperate to to distract and move the debate on from his fundamental failure of not just governance but decency in relation to the way that he's handled these multiple accusations of of sexual assault, either within his parliament or by his cabinet ministers. He's so determined to kind of distract people from that 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 he's actually just. He's just outrageously politicised the enormous work, not just of the Royal Commissioners, but of all the people who spent years working to inform the Royal Commission into aged care. Uh, He's just thrown that out there. Uh, He's thrown that out there like a rock in a pond just to kind of get people looking in the other direction 
desperately, if only for a 24-hour news cycle. So, uh, of course, the, the fundamental problems with aged care aren't going to go away. And indeed, there will be scrutiny of the report over time. Uh, but yes, yesterday was was a, 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 a simple... Uh, well, let me, let me go back a bit. Why did the Prime Minister do this? Because for two days, for two days... He absolutely refused to engage with the fact that he'd been sent a dossier of evidence uh, about one of his cabinet ministers who have been accused of raping a woman. And yet he's made no comment on that. He made no comment about that on Friday, none on Saturday, none on Sunday. He knew he needed to front the media yesterday. So the big challenge for him when he walked into the office yesterday was to say, hey, media team, Obviously, I can't hide for a whole other day. Obviously, I've got to show up and talk about something. What 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 tricks have you got up your sleeve? How about we how about we just drop the aged care royal commission without even sending it to people before we talk about it? Great idea, kids. Let's go do that. This is not how you run a country. This is not how you build faith in democracy, uh, and this is not. Uh, how uh, any, I think, person of integrity uh, would behave under such a situation. If he's got nothing to hide, he should be more than happy to answer questions. But uh, but instead, he's, he's chucking distractions out there and refusing to take questions on the substantive issue. Mm. Well, usually, just to remind everyone what used to happen, didn't the government kind of read the whole report, respond to it, talk about which recommendations they would follow up on and endorse and put into action? Oh, multiple ways for the government to do it. They, indeed, they they could release the report and and their response at the same time, or they could accept the report and 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 give it to people and then uh, give them time to read it, either under embargo or before they hold a press conference. Oh, there's all sorts of ways that a sophisticated, uh, a sophisticated, enormously expensive media machine that sits underneath the government uh, can inform the public, comma when it wants to. But let's be clear, that's not what's taking place at the moment. I, you know, thousands of taxpayer-funded media advisors in not just in our parliament house, but uh, in, in, in a multitude of departments, literally thousands of people are now employed at taxpayers' expense not to disseminate information, but to conceal it and obfuscate it and, 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 and put it out at the precisely the least useful time for the public uh, but the most useful time for government, you know, th- this from a government that says it's interested in using taxpayers' money well. I mean, I-, I could come up with a better media strategy for them for free, but mine would revolve around the release of information, not its concealment. Yes, I think the strategies would be very divergent. Richard, let's get to how the government spends its money. You've just intimated there that you could think of better ways to spend its money. I could agree, and I think there are plenty of better ways that they could spend it. A lot of people have said, oh, well, you know, we don't want to spend too much money on people who are unemployed, that they're so-called quote-unquote dole bludgers, which when this job seeker unemployment allowance change was announced, also came with a side dish of a dob-in-a-dole bludger hotline, also using inverted commas, which employers can call to say that if they think that a person who had applied for a job, the employer gave them that job, and then the person knocked it back and said, no, I've changed my mind. Apparently, that is the role of this 
so-called Dobbin hotline is to to rat on people who apparently are ungrateful for a job that they may have been offered. Um, there are so many reasons why someone may not be able to take up a job anymore that they could have been offered, very practical reasons. But Richard, first of all, this change in the rate, a permanent change, I should say, because as we've seen before over this pandemic, and we've discussed in multiple interviews before, we did see a temporary change in the job seeker allowance, as well as a massive boost via a coronavirus supplement. So we saw this temporary change. We've now had this discussion of when all of that is removed, which the government has decided is on March the 31st, what's going to be left? Are we still going to see people on $40 a day, which I believe is about $565 a fortnight, or are we going to see a change in the rate? And of course, so many people, and you included, and the Australia Institute as well, uh, as well as the Business Council of Australia, ACOS as well, have been advocating for an increase in the rate. And this is something that's been happening for just such a long time, I honestly can't remember when it started. That is because, of course, this $40 a day situation has been, you know, the rate for how long, Richard? Tell me, like, how long have we had no change? Yeah, good question. So the unemployment benefit has risen with inflation over time. Um, but wages uh, rise faster than inflation. So uh, when, when something rises faster than inflation, we say it goes up in real terms. Uh, and look, it was Paul Keating that uh, delivered the last real increase uh, in unemployment benefits in Australia, Paul Keating. Now, well, what we need to understand happened last week was the government announced a cut in the unemployment benefit, a cut. So unemployment benefits have been terribly low for decades. At the beginning of the crisis, we, we effectively doubled the doll, um, which, by the way, doubled it to, uh, to to something that kind of made us look like most other developed countries. Uh, we did have the worst uh, unemployment benefits in the OECD, uh, and we doubled them, uh, which didn't make them generous. It just kind of made them kind of normal for a rich country. And then since then, we've cut them twice. <laughs> we've, we've, we, we, we got spontaneously generous and, and we, we, we cut the supplement once and last week we announced we're cutting it all together and while we were cutting the supplement all together, we, we replaced it with a very small increase, less than five bucks a day. So if you became unemployed after the, uh, after the COVID crisis hit, then if that's when you became unemployed and became eligible for benefits, then, you know, for the first time in modern Australian history, you, you went on to an unemployment benefit that was kind of actually half decent. And then since that time, we've cut your unemployment benefits twice. But spin being what it is, we, we, we've turned the cut into an increase. We've said, oh, sure, we might have got rid of the supplement, but we've replaced it with an increase in the base rate. So it's an increase. No, it's not. We cut the supplement by far, the, by far more than we increased the base rate. And all that matters to an unemployed person is how much money shows up in their bank account. And as a result of last week's decision announcement, uh, less money is going to show up in people's bank accounts. So, um, and as you said, yes, and of course, you know, to get out the trumpets, roll out the red carpet, you know, look at this, we've finally increased unemployment benefits in, in real terms, according to the Prime Minister, for the first time in decades, and we've invented a dob in a dole bludger line uh, 
so we can make sure that everyone knows we're watching these greedy, unemployed people like hawks. I mean, spare me. It's, uh, it's everything that's wrong with Australia's approach to welfare. We don't see it as a safety net. We don't see it as a way to help our, our friends and family in time of need. We see it uh, as some form of burden and it's, uh, you know, we, we, we live in terrible fear that the poorest people in Australia are the, are the ones exploiting us while we're delivering tax cuts, <laughs> far, far more expensive tax cuts for the highest income earners in Australia. So when we say we can't afford to increase unemployment benefits, that is just complete crap. Uh, but more importantly, we, we, we make that lie just after we deliver high-income earners like me a tax cut. How come we can always afford tax cuts, permanent tax cuts? How come we can always afford them and we can never afford to be nice to the lowest-paid people in the country? Well, we can also afford to give businesses, JobKeeper, and, uh, you know, we've since seen a range of reports from some businesses, of course, not all businesses, but some did actually do particularly well during the pandemic because of the type of business, presumably, that they had. And a lot of these are kind of online retail outlets, for example. They've managed to, you know, pay out their executives with million-dollar bonuses using JobKeeper um, because they were given all this money and they've posted massive profits in the millions of dollars. And the Prime Minister we have seen has come out and said, oh, well, uh, it's up to them if they wanted to pay it back to us. So we see that happening at a corporate and business level is, oh, well, it's up to you. But then when the unemployment robo-debt situation, which there were so many examples where the algorithm had actually just stuffed it up because of how it was set up, um, but we're going to pursue these people with an inch of their lives. So I wonder, you know, whether that contrast has become more stark given that we've just seen that of course JobKeeper did play a role and it worked in some cases and was absolutely necessary but in other cases um, you know post facto looking at it now it does seem that some of it was excessive in some cases and for anyone who thinks there should be fairness in where you put taxpayer money it seems like there should be some way to recoup the kind of excesses that companies have you know amassed. No, absolutely. Or why not create a hotline where we can <laughs> job in our employers? No, oh, why not? Like, think it last, but that's because we just we don't think for a minute in Australia that we would ever subject powerful people to the kind of scrutiny that we love to load up on on the least powerful people in the country. So, yeah, look, you know, if 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 uh, if a business or a, or a very wealthy Australian winds up in dispute with the tax office over how much tax they should have paid years ago, the tax office will settle for cents in the dollar. They're quite pragmatic. They think, well, we don't want to spend a fortune in court and we might lose. So, you know, all right, sure, we thought you owed us 10 million bucks, but how about we settle for five? The tax office is, I'm not making this up, the tax office is quite proud of what it sees as its commercial approach to debt recovery. Uh, but Finlink won't cut you any slack for cents on the dollar. No chance. And, and, and as we saw with RoboDebt, they will hunt you to the grave for mm. trivial amounts of money. So, so let's be clear. What we've done in Australia is, is, build, uh, is build systems that, 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 that are designed to shame people who need unemployment benefits, it's designed to shame people 
who rely on welfare. And uh, and then for purely symbolic purposes, we, we, we waste enormous amounts of taxpayers' money on nonsense hotlines just so we can let millions of conservative voters know I'm not letting those bastards get away with anything. So not only are we cruel, we need to be seen to be cruel. (laughs) None of this is an accident. That's where people get it wrong. People think, oh, that that hotline will never work. No one will ever ring. You know what? They know that. (laughs) The purpose of the hotline is, is, no, this is important. The purpose of the hotline is not actually to catch an unemployed person, although, you know, there's no doubt they hope it will. The purpose of the hotline is to send a signal on the 6 o'clock news I'm watching them, you know. Mm. Vote for me. I'm like I'm like you. I'm I'm not going to cut these guys any slack at all. Vote for me. I promise I'll be nasty and cruel. And and of course that's that's how they won votes with refugees. They promised not to be nice to vulnerable people. Um, you know, let's take a look in the mirror, Australia. It's very successful vote winning strategy to promise to be cruel to vulnerable people. Works a treat. Yes, well, it's proven, absolutely. Um, Yeah, it is absolutely, as you say, window dressing. It's not bad policy that someone, you know, a thought bubble that a a civil servant or a staffer came up with, it's absolutely has a clear purpose. Just to really lay out to people and emphasise what we're talking about, given that people have talked about how inadequate this payment is, I just wanted to point out, you already said that this payment was before the change, when it was $40 a day, it was the absolute lowest in the OECD. It's now the second lowest, uh, just above Greece. (laughs) Yeah. Greece is literally uh, in major economic turmoil, um, not like Australia. And one thing uh, I wanted to lay this out. So the payment change, which is, as you say, a winding back, a massive winding back, because people with the coronavirus supplement will lose $75 a week that they currently have with their current amount. But the Morrison government has said that the so-called increase will be $50 per fortnight, which works out to be $3.57 per day after the end of March. So this is, as we've already said, something that people struggle to live on if they really live on it at all, because I doubt they're probably able to afford nutritious food, for example, or the basic essentials of medicine that they might need, given that so many people also have chronic health conditions and are put on job seeker and can't get onto a disability support pension. So I just wanted to lay out just how measly that amount is and the fact that anyone who thinks that someone wouldn't want a job and probably a better salary than that because I mean surely most jobs would have a better salary than what we're currently offering people on unemployment benefits it just is an absolute nonsense to think that someone wouldn't work if they couldn't work would that be your assessment from an economic perspective when you look at the data around unemployment people and jobs um, that are actually available for those who are actually on the benefits? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just it's, it's nonsense on so many levels. But, you know, let, let's be clear. None of this has got anything to do with economics. None of this has got anything to do with the budget or the budget deficit. All of this revolves around symbolism and trying to win votes at the next election. How do we know? How do we know that the unemployment benefit isn't a barrier to job creation? Well, the government's bragging about record job creation that's occurred 
over the last six months as we've begun to emerge from the crisis. So how can you simultaneously say, <laughs> look at us, the economy's coming back faster than we thought, employment's growing faster than we thought, while unemployment benefits are really high, and then argue, oh, high unemployment benefits uh, are some sort of constraint on the ability uh, of, of employers to find staff. So let's just say that's bullshit reason number one. Um, absolute bullshit reason number two is, as you said, oh, well, you know, people might just think, oh, it's such a sweet gig being unemployed. Uh, why would I be a sucker and go and get a job when I can just, uh, I can just milk everybody else on unemployment benefits forever? Leaving aside that even when we doubled unemployment benefits, that uh, the the rates were still significantly below, for example, the minimum wage, and leaving aside the fact that a parliamentarian spending a night in Canberra gets more for one night's travel allowance than an unemployed person gets for a week, leaving aside that, what we know is there's far, far more unemployed people then there are jobs going. Because we don't just have data on the number of unemployed people, we have data on job vacancies. So, the, so let's just imagine that the Conservatives' worst nightmare is out there. There's some guy who's bonging on and couldn't be asked getting out of bed and doesn't want a job. If there's a million people looking for 200,000 jobs, how does being nasty to that archetypical, clichéd doll bludger help anybody. Like, even if that person exists, even if there's 10,000 of them, how does it have any economic significance at all when you've got more than a million people looking for 200,000 jobs? Like, <laughs> like if, if some unemployed people... No, but seriously, if some unemployed people wanted to stick their hand up and say, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm good. If other people are desperate to get the jobs first, what, doesn't it make more sense to give it to the people who are desperate for jobs first and after you've solved all their unemployment, well, all right, maybe then come and pick on me? What's the point in jumping straight on to an attack on this imaginary cliche when we know there's more than a million people looking for around 200,000 jobs? So history tells us, recent history tells us, that the most generous unemployment benefit we've ever had was no constraint to very rapid employment growth coming out of the crisis. And we know right now, at this point in time, there's far more people looking for jobs than there are jobs. So even if one of them is lazy and doesn't want a job, who actually cares? Do we want to make the lazy person that doesn't want a job get a job so that the person who's desperate for a job can miss out? Is that a win? Mm. <laughs> We're through the looking glass. Mm. Yeah, and if we look at that and maybe if we look at Scott Morrison's coalition government, Liberal and National, and realise perhaps we're holding out hope for a change that will not happen through this government, if we look at the alternative government, which is the Australian Labor Party, what are your thoughts and observations and what are their intimations about what they think of social security and whether this particular payment is adequate? Would they do things any differently to a small degree or even to hopefully a larger degree? Yeah, look, good question. I guess, you know, you, you have to get Labor on to ask them. But um, look, at the moment, there's no doubt that, um, uh, that Labor's strategy 
starts from the assumption that they went to the last election putting forward too many policies and having a debate about what Labor would do versus what the Liberals had done. And there's no doubt that Labor thinks that was a mistake. And what they're now saying is, no, we're we're just going to keep reminding people that it's the government's job to govern and we're going to hold the government accountable for the government's own claim. So, you know, if you think about shareholders in a company, you're allowed to be angry at the CEO for failing to deliver on all of their targets and you don't, as a shareholder, have to have your own strategy uh, in order to legitimately criticise the company that keeps failing to meet its targets. So, so at the moment, Labor's strategy is very much one of reminding people, hey, this government's been in for nearly eight years. Uh, if, if there's problems with the training uh, system, that's on them. If there's problems with the aged care system, that's on them. Uh, and there's, you know, there's legitimacy in that. We need to hold this government to account for the bizarre failure to implement most of the things they even announced. I mean, that's the good thing about the Dobbin hotline. They're, these people probably don't have the attention span to actually make it happen. But <laughs> the flip side of that is that, uh, yeah, when you ask a question like, what's Labor going to do? What do they think unemployment benefits should be? Well, we don't know. Uh, they're mm. saying, well, look, you know, we'll wait till we get, we'll wait till we get closer to the election. We'll wait till we see uh, what the budget looks like. We'll wait till we've got more of the information the government currently has its hands on today, and then we'll we'll let you know that in the lead up to the election. But in the meantime, can everyone notice that after eight years? you know, this government has still failed on X, Y and Z. So, look, I don't think... Well, I assume that Labor will go to the next election offering slightly higher unemployment benefits uh, than the Liberals. But, you know, Labor have got an eye on those same nasty voters that like to punish vulnerable people. Uh, and there'll be those in Labor saying, look, if, if we look too generous to the to the unemployed, you know, we might not win a whole bunch of votes in some seats. So... You know, again, let's take a good look in the mirror, Australia. Being nasty to vulnerable people is a proven vote-winning strategy. So uh, for those of us obsessed with both being nice and politics, that's a hard truth to confront, but we need to confront it. Yeah. Just finally, Richard, I just wanted to get your take because I have seen a lot of spin coming out from Treasury and particularly the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, about just how miraculous Australia's economic recovery is at the moment and just how amazing it is that they've been creating all of these jobs. I did also see the ABS release jobs figures and at the time it didn't actually delineate or or show whether the jobs that had been created were full-time, part-time or casual jobs. So at the time, I was a little bit sceptical when I saw new jobs figures. Um, for someone who actually does keep an eye on this far more closely and understands it better than I, is what the government has been saying about jobs creation actually what has been happening? Uh, yeah, but like, like, like all good spin, it's not outright lies. It's just a very good job of getting us to look at something from a particular point of view. Um, uh, it's hard to explain spin to people, but if, if you were in front of me now, I'd tell you to pick up anything near you. I've got a book in my hand. And when I look at the back of the book, the shape is quite different from when I look at the side of the book. Right? The dimensions of the book are really quite different when you look at it from different perspectives. Well, that's what spin is. It's, it's the art of saying, look at it from this point of view. Look at it from this point of view. Mm. So... What the, government's, what the government's rightly saying is employment is growing very rapidly. And it is. There's no doubt it is. 
but it's growing very rapidly off a very low base. So uh, imagine you had 100 bucks in the bank and I took 90 bucks off you, so now you've only got 10 bucks, and then I gave you $10 back, you could say, wacko, I just doubled my money. <laughs> I just went from $10 to 20 It's like, yeah, you used to have 100 Remember yeah. that? So, so what happened with the with with the Corona crisis was, you know, the economy fell off a cliff. It con- contracted by seven percent. You know, uh, half a million people lost their jobs. We saw the queues. So, off that very low base, we've now we're now seeing percentage increases that look really quite good. And to be clear, you know, strong employment growth is better uh, than weak employment growth, but. Uh, we've still got less people working now in Australia than we did at the beginning of 2019. We've still got far more unemployed people now than we did at the beginning of 2019. And I guess what frustrates me most is the reason that we're having such strong employment growth, the reason that things are doing better than we thought is because the government behaved like Keynesians and chucked a couple of hundred billion dollars at the economy. That's what caused all of this growth in employment that they're so rightly proud of. But what are they now promising to do? Cut that spending. Mm. (laughs) So what's the thing that got us out of this crisis faster than we thought? Spending. What are they now promising to do? Cut unemployment benefits, cut this, cut that. Like, yeah, the the disconnect is amazing. Mm. Uh, But, yeah, I fear very quickly we'll move back to blaming the unemployed for their unemployment rather than blaming the government for, uh, for, for for implementing policies that see strong employment growth continue, not for months, but for years. Because if we want to get back to where we were, if you want to get back to your 100 bucks, not be excited about moving from 10 to 20, if you want to get back to where we were, we need the economy to grow strongly, very strongly for years. Mm. Yeah. Richard, it's been so enlightening as it always is and also very fun to chat with you and to really (laughs) (laughs) pull apart the spin. I feel like I, and I'm sure everyone listening will feel that they're better able to hold the government to account and confident to talk about these issues more. So I'm really grateful for your time and your insight today. Anytime. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I've just been chatting with Dr. Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, which is based up in Canberra.